Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a series in the book of 1 Corinthians called A Better Way. We're learning that the letter Paul wrote the church in Corinth shows us a better way to be God's people in this world. Thanks for joining us. Obviously, I'm not going to have as much room to roam this week uh, because we wanted to have the cross front and center because I think as you're going to see from this text, the cross is front and center. I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but several years ago, I was in my son's bedroom and I was explaining to him our faith. And it sort of dawned on me as I was explaining to him how crazy this really is. You see, I'm telling him that God had created him to be in a relationship with him, but because of his sin, that relationship was broken. But that wasn't the end of the story. God still wanted a relationship with him, and so God sent his son. His name is Jesus. He was born of a virgin. He lived 33 years where he taught and did miracles. He showed us what the kingdom of God looks like, and then he purposefully died on a cross and then rose again from the dead. And if my son puts his trust in that, he can have eternal life both now and forevermore. And I'm sitting there talking to my seven-year-old son going, wow, this is pretty crazy. I wonder how much he can actually understand of this, and yet that message right there has literally changed millions of people's lives, including mine, including many of yours, and yes, including our sons. Praise God. And that's the reality we're going to be looking at together this morning as we continue our series in the book of 1 Corinthians that we have called A Better Way. We're studying 1 Corinthians this year, and the reason we're calling it A Better Way is because the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to an actual church that was struggling on how to live as Christians in the context in which they were placed, and so he wants to show them a better way to live as God's people in this world. And so even though we're just getting started in this series, last week we saw already that this church need a better way because they were on the brink of division. Now if I had to sum up last week one word why this church was divided, why they were fighting, it's the word pride. Truly, pride is at the root of all sin. It's at the root of all division. And this church was full of pride. They were taking pride in the different teachers and leaders that they were following. And they were looking down on others who weren't a part of their group. And it was causing splitting. But as we saw last week, Paul, in grace and truth, gently rebukes them and reminds them to stop looking at the things that divide you and fix your eyes. On the cross of Jesus Christ, which is the thing that unites you. The reason he does that, and he's going to continue this train of thought this week, if you're following on your notes with me, it's when we look to the cross, there is no room for pride. When we look to the cross, there is no room for pride. When you truly understand the message of the cross, there's no room for boasting, there's no room for division. And so Paul continues to challenge this church to look to the cross. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn it to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. If you're still getting used to where things are in your Bible, that's probably about four-fifths of the way back in your Bible. If you don't have your own Bible, we have some always in the seat underneath you, around you somewhere. Love for you to grab one of those. Pick that up. If you don't have one, 
Take it home with you as our gift to you, but you can find 1 Corinthians 1, 18 on page 924 of those black Bibles in the seat underneath you there. Now, just a little bit of a warning here. This is a bit of a heavier text, a bit of a longer text, and it's honestly one of the more famous texts in all of Scripture. But let me just say up front, Paul wants to get one idea across, which is that the cross has changed everything. The cross has changed everything. So if you don't mind, would you mind bowing your head with me and let's pray. Lord, this is your word. And so I pray that as I deliver it, it would be received full of grace and truth just as you designed it to be. Help us to fix our eyes on the cross of Jesus Christ this morning. We pray this together in his name. Amen. Well, friends, Paul's going to waste no time undermining their pride. Right away in verse 18, let's see what he says. Can we read this out loud together? One of the more famous passages of Scripture, it says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Paul backs that up by quoting from Isaiah in the Old Testament, verse 19, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise... The intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Say that ten times fast. Listen, here Paul is basically saying what the entire Bible says, that the world is split into two groups. There are those who are perishing and those who are being saved. Ultimately, all human beings fall into one of those two groups. There's no other group. And what is the thing that ultimately separates those two groups? Paul says... It is the cross of Jesus Christ. Those who are perishing reject it and its message. They think it's foolishness. Those who accept it receive it and salvation is found there. Literally, what Paul is saying is that the cross is the centerpiece of human history. It is the pivot point on which all other things rest because it is at the cross where God revealed himself to humanity. He died for our sins. He demonstrated his perfect holiness and yet also his perfect love. That is where Jesus conquered Satan and death and sin. And it is where eternal life is given and promised both now and forevermore. And if you're following on your notes, Paul argues there is no salvation apart from the cross. There is no salvation apart from the cross. Now, That's not a very popular word today. We're told that that, saying that, we sang it earlier as well, it's too exclusive, it's too offensive, and it's too intolerant. And yet it's not my message, nor is it even Paul's message. Jesus himself said this in John 14, 6, when he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We don't want to believe that today. We want to believe that all roads eventually lead to the same place. And so for us to exclaim that the cross is exclusive, the only way to find salvation both now and back then was considered foolishness. Nonsense. I mean, really, have you ever had somebody repeat the gospel to you as you were explaining it to them like I was with Will? It is a little bit crazy right? We claim that God was born as a human being through a virgin. He worked a regular job as a carpenter for 30 years, 
And then for three years, he stepped onto the scene and he began to teach and he did incredible miracles, showing people what the kingdom of God looks like. And then listen, he purposefully, his plan all along, he purposefully went to die in the most humiliating way possible. And then in power, God rose him from the dead and he now sits in heaven as Lord over all the earth. And if you believe in that, you will receive eternal life, which begins now. You've ever explained that to someone? And they're like, you must be nuts. You're crazy. But for those of us who have experienced the cross's saving power, we look at it and say, no. It is the most glorious, wonderful, beautiful event in all of human history. Listen, God has given himself to us. God is love. And the cross is the power for salvation. Friends, part of what Paul is doing here is reminding the Corinthians and us still today what unites us. As we saw last week, they're tempted to abandon the message of the cross for more eloquent alternatives because they've recognized something you've probably recognized today if you live in this world. There's nothing particularly appealing or attractive or eloquent about the message of the cross of Jesus Christ. In fact, it is offensive. Why is the cross offensive? Because when we preach the cross, we preach that you're a sinner and you need a savior and you can't do that yourself. Only Jesus can do that for you. We don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear that I need someone outside of myself to save me because that's not what our world values at all. But God flips what we value upside down. The world values power and wealth and fame and beauty and wisdom. Jesus comes to us in weakness and humility and sacrifice and death. It's preposterous. It's foolish. It's offensive. A crucified God is the power for salvation. Martin Luther broke this section of 1 Corinthians down. I'm not talking about Martin Luther King Jr. I'm talking about the theologian Martin Luther. And he said there's basically two ways to view life. There's a theology of glory and a theology of the cross. The theology of glory is the way the world thinks. And if I'm just being honest with you, it's the way I think a lot of times. The theology of glory is that everybody wants to be rich and beautiful and successful and powerful and accepted. And in a theology of glory, theology just means the way we think about God. In a theology of glory, we think God is a means to help us achieve our ends. God, give me this. God, give me that. Sort of like the rabbit foot God. By the way, if you want an example of this, think of Peter. Three times Jesus explained to the disciples where this was all leading. He told them beforehand, listen, I'm going to be crucified on a cross. Peter pulled him aside and rebuked him. He said, no, that's not the idea of a Messiah, Jesus. I believe in a theology of glory, Jesus. I believe you're going to overthrow Rome, Jesus. I believe I'm going to sit at your right hand on a throne, Jesus. Peter believed in a theology of glory, and Jesus took him aside and rebuked him. He said, no, I'm going to the cross. And listen, anybody who chooses to follow me, Peter, 
Anybody who chooses to be called my disciple, you will follow that same path. It isn't a theology of glory. It's a theology of the cross. Listen, Jesus wasn't rich. Jesus wasn't powerful. Jesus wasn't beautiful. Jesus wasn't accepted. If you're reading through the New Testament right now with us as a church, and it's never too late to start, but if you're reading through it, you see this. His own family rejects him, thinking he's nuts. Why? Because he's living a theology of the cross, not a theology of glory. He was mocked, he died, he suffered, and he said, if you want to follow me, you will do the same. The way of the cross is foolishness to our world. It's nonsense. My temptation, friends, I'm just going to be honest with you, is to soften it. I want to make it less offensive. I want to make it more attractive to be a Christian. And that's what this church in Corinth was doing. And yet Paul says, I warn you. When you begin going down the path of a theology of glory, not only are you walking further away from the Lord, but you are tearing your own church apart, your relationships apart. Because if you're on your notes, the theology of glory and the theology of the cross are in conflict. Let me say that again. The theology of glory and the theology of the cross are in conflict. Surely you have experienced this conflict. I can't be the only one. I experience it every single day. Every message we receive from the world is glory, power, popularity, fame, money. The message of the cross is sacrifice. Ugh. Death, foolishness. When I was in high school, this became very clear to me that we were walking a different path. I had friends who didn't believe in the Lord. We had great, honest conversations about that. But one of the things that they could not get over is that I was going to save myself for marriage. Why? Well, because I'm following what Jesus says. I want to be obedient to what Jesus says. And they would mock me. They would laugh at me. They literally said, that will never happen. To them, that whole idea is just foolishness. It's nonsense. But for me, it's where the power came from. Obedience in the cross of Christ. He said, that's the path that you're going to walk. Paul continues this argument in verse 20 and following, where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Now, friends, let me just pause. What do these three categories of people have in common? Paul mentions here. They're the experts. They're the experts, right? They're the ones we look to for answers to life's questions. They're the college professors, the news pundits, the social commentators. And yet, Paul says here, their wisdom is nothing close to even God's foolishness. Indeed, God's foolishness is wiser than any wisdom they have. Why? Look at verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Those are kind of confusing words. All Paul is simply saying is you can't reason your way to God. And so the smartest person, listen, tell me you don't think this is true. The smartest person who has ever, ever lived would never have conceived of the ridiculousness of this message. Christ on a cross? That's the best you've got? That's your wisdom? It's 
foolishness, and yet even a smidge of God's foolishness is wiser than any wisdom we have as human beings. The wisest person is not going to, quote, figure out God. If you're following on your notes here, I think what Paul is saying is we can't reason our way to God. Now, before I finish that, let me just say that doesn't mean Paul discounts reasoning and truth and apologetics and arguing. Not at all. It simply means nobody's going to reason their way into a relationship with God. If you're finishing that line there, salvation comes by revelation. God's plan was to die on a cross. Listen, nobody would make that up. As a viable solution to the problem we have as human beings, and yet that is how God revealed himself to us. Some of you know I love church history, and about 1,900 years ago, there was a guy by the name of Tertullian, and he would get in all kinds of debates with people, and he would reason for them, and his main argument, I love this, his main argument is just what we're talking about here, what Paul's talking about is, no way could you actually conceive this unless it was true. No human in their right mind would make this up unless it were true. No human, as the apostles did, would go to their death unless this was true. If humans had simply invented the gospel, let's be honest, we would have invented something much more respectable. Tertullian famously wrote this, and I'm going to have this on the screen. It's old language. It's a little different than how we talk, but I think you'll get the gist of it. He famously said, The Son of God was crucified. I am not ashamed because men must needs be ashamed of it. In other words, just because other people are ashamed, I'm not. And the Son of God died. It is all, by all means to be believed because it is absurd. And he was buried and rose again. The fact is certain because it is impossible. But not all can grasp it. Look at verse 22. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Paul here lists two people groups and what they value, things we still value today. The Greeks were told value wisdom. They prided themselves. If you were here and you've learned about Corinth so far, right? They loved wisdom. They prided themselves on their cultural life and their intellectual life. And so Paul is simply saying when he would enter into a city like Corinth or Athens or Rome and he would preach Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified by the Romans but then raised from the dead by God who is now the Lord of the world summoning all people into faithful obedience to him, they would have gone, what? Are you nuts? Read Acts 17 sometime. Paul steps into Athens, which was the cultural hub of the day. And he preaches this message, and they laugh him off the stage. An executed criminal from a despised race offering salvation to all people. The Jewish problem was that they demanded power and miracle and signs. They wanted God to come and crush their enemies and liberate them. They had a theology of glory in mind for their Messiah. And so listen, we're used to the cross today. But this was a contradiction in terms for them in this day. It's an oxymoron. No Messiah would end up on a cross. Cursed are those who hang on a tree. Deuteronomy 21, 23. 
Messiah would come and deliver them from Rome, not be executed by Rome. So Paul says this is a stumbling block for them. And yet, this is exactly what happened in God's wisdom. In verse 24, Paul says, But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. In other words, both of those groups have people who have come to faith in this. He has revealed himself to them. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Listen, from the perspective of power and the way we think of it, Chuck was talking about this earlier, this is weak. From the perspective of wisdom as the way we look at it today, this is foolish. And yet, if you're following on your notes, the cross has turned the world upside down. It is where true power and wisdom come from. Victory is come, comes by giving up life, not by grabbing after it. In this next section, Paul reminds the Corinthians that, listen, this is your own experience. So why in the world would you go, be going back to a theology of glory? Do you remember how you came to Christ? They're caring more about being cool or powerful or rich or beautiful or accepted They want to be somebodies in Corinth, but the message of the cross is not what they first believed. So Paul says to them, starting in verse 26, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. It'd be good for us to do that as well. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Now read verses 28 and 29 on your notes with me. It says, God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. I'll keep going. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, not because of you, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Break that all down. I think Paul is simply asking the question, where is all this arrogance and pride actually coming from? Don't you remember who you were? Don't you remember who you were before you heard the message of the cross? You weren't wise. You weren't powerful. You weren't even wealthy. It doesn't matter that you were baptized by me or Apollos or Peter. Are you forgetting who it was who revealed himself to you? It was God. You were a bunch of nobodies, I think is basically what Paul is saying here. You were a bunch of nobodies. You were just regular common people. That's who you were when God It's one of the best words in the Bible. Chose you. When God chose you. You think he chose you because of how great you were? Now that's true foolishness. That's true foolishness. If you're on your notes, it is God alone who makes nobodies into somebodies. It is God alone who makes nobodies into somebodies. Look, no one is ever going to stand before the throne of God in heaven someday and go... I'm here because I'm a somebody. I'm here because of what I've done. I'm here because I proved myself to you. I'm here and you chose me because I deserved it. No. 
There is no boasting. None of us have any reason to boast because we will stand before the throne of God on the basis of his grace alone. We're nobodies who God has made somebodies. Have you learned this yet? That it's all by God's grace, friends. I believed early on in my life that I had to make myself into a somebody before I would be received by God. I did that through being good. I did good works. I was a good kid. I kept trying to prove myself that I'm worthy of this calling of God choosing me, and yet it wasn't until I understood it is by grace alone that I have been saved that I can now stand before God, as verse 30 says, completely righteous, completely holy, redeemed, bought back from my slavery to sin. It's called grace. Do you know it? Do you know it here? It's why we cannot boast. If you're on your notes, we have nothing to boast about that we did not receive. We have nothing to boast about that we did not receive. So it is with the Corinthians. Paul says, you've got nothing that you didn't receive from Christ. Don't you remember who you were? So again, when he's applying this to the vision in this church because of pride, Paul's point is nobody here is better than anybody else in God's eyes. Oh, that we would remember that sometimes. All of us stand equal before the cross of Christ. All of us who know the cross are righteous. Wow. We're holy. We are redeemed. And that is what unites us. God has chosen us. This lesson came home to me when I was in junior high. I tried out for the basketball team at our school. It was a really big school, and I was not six foot five, believe it or not, in junior high. I was actually five foot one, and I was a little bit awkward. I wasn't the greatest athlete, but I tried out for this junior high basketball team, and I showed up to the tryouts, and I realized I'm not even close to being one of the best kids on this team. And so the day of the cuts came, and I was pretty positive that I was going to get cut, and we all stood in this line. I'll remember it. It was outside. We were standing at the basketball court. Our coach is looking there. He's going to choose his team, and he looks at me, and he says, you first. I was like, me? I couldn't believe it. He chose me first on this team. I'm not even the best player. Looking back on that now, I realize why he did that. He simply wanted to encourage me. He wanted me to experience some encouragement, some some uplifting, and it made a difference. And I just want to say to you, that's what God does for you. He looks at the line and says, I choose you. I choose you. I choose you. Not because of you proving yourself to me. Simply because I love you. That is the upside down way of faith, friends. We look for heroes today. We look for somebodies, don't we? We idolize famous people. Sports figure, rich people. But God, you know who he looks for? Humble people. God says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Left to ourselves, I am not, to myself, I am nothing, but in Christ, I am invaluable. I am adopted as his child. So too are you. But I don't boast about that. I boast in the cross of Christ alone. 
Paul then closes this section by downplaying his role in how they actually came to faith. I love this. He knows it's not about him. I know it's not about me. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power." Even God's methods of sharing his message are foolish. Even that's upside down. If you're on your notes, God's method is using weak people to share his message. What is he thinking? God's method is using weak people to share his message. Paul reminds them, I didn't come to you with a great light show, with the spectacle. I didn't put on a circus. I preached Christ crucified. I came in fear and trembling. By all historical accounts, Paul wasn't a great speaker. And yet, somehow, as he was faithful to the message, the Spirit of God would show up and people would believe. Friends, that's how it still works today. God doesn't look for the most eloquent or smart or wisest people. He simply looks for people who are willing Why? Because the power is in the message of the gospel, not in the messenger. Say that again. The power is in the message of the cross, not in the one who delivers the message. It is the spirit of God alone who can bring somebody to faith in Christ. I learned this pretty early on in my life, and I'm glad I did. Otherwise, I'd be a mess. I was asked in high school to speak in front of 200 plus high school students. As a high schooler, And because I was on that path of being a good kid, remember I told you about that? I said yes. And it was the worst decision of my life leading up to that time. Worst month of my life. The worst night of my life when that night actually came. I'm throwing up in a bathroom stall, begging my youth pastor, please don't make me go out there and do this. And he pulls me out. He and some of the counselors prayed for me. And I tell you, I'm not even exaggerating. I went out there and I gave the worst message on John 3.16 you will ever hear in your life. Worst. And yet, the Spirit of God fell on several students that night. And they looked to the cross of Christ for their salvation. It's the lesson of 2 Corinthians 12, 9. I hope you know it. Let's read it out loud on the screen. But he said to me, let's read the rest. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That's how he works. It's upside down. It's foolish. Weak people. Fearful people. People who have nothing to boast about. Friends, as I considered how to apply this powerful section of Scripture, I came to two things I believe Paul is encouraging us with if we are Christians. I'm going to call them two don'ts. So here's how we're going to close here if you're on your notes. Number one, the first is don't be ashamed of the cross of Christ. Don't be ashamed of the cross of Christ. Too many of us, including me at times, feel like I need to soften the message. I need to make it more palpable. 
I need to make it more acceptable so we might hide or we might be afraid that people are going to think we're crazy or we're foolish for believing this. But Paul says, don't be ashamed. It is the power of God for salvation, both then and still now, today. Yes, some people are going to think it's foolish. Some people are going to think it's crazy, but you know, because you've experienced it, it is the power for life. Paul wrote about this in Romans 1.16. I put this on our notes so we could read it out loud together. Can we do that? He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. It is the power of God. So, so what if the world mocks? So what if the world scoffs? So be it. Let's not back down in fear and cowering. Let's embrace the foolishness knowing that the foolishness of God is wiser than men. Verse 25. There are times when people are going to think you're crazy. Can I just tell you that again? There are times when people are going to think you're crazy. You didn't sleep with your girlfriend? What? Are you a prude or something? You're spending your spring break going on a mission trip? You believe a guy actually rose from the dead? Are you nuts? Uh, I am a little nuts. But that's the upside down way of God's wisdom. And it has changed my life. And it has changed yours as well. Today, just as in Paul's day, biblical Christianity is being mocked. Our society will tolerate every bizarre and immoral belief conceivable. But born again Christians are considered foolish and ignorant. We should not be surprised by that. I am always. I'm always surprised by that, but we shouldn't be. Why am I surprised? Jesus said, this is the way of the cross. This is what's going to happen. I want the way of glory, though. I want the way of acceptance. I want to soften it. That's not the message. Friends, if these verses remind us of anything, is that the cross is still seen as foolishness today, and we can't expect even a majority of people to respond positively to the gospel. To speak of the exclusivity of Jesus is repelling. But that's where the power of God is. I don't know the right word to use here, but I found it amazing that on the week we're looking at this text, Billy Graham passed away. You want to know why? This is one of the texts that he preached most often from. This and a text in Galatians. And so I thought, just as a way to remind ourselves of what this message is all about, I'm going to show you two minutes of a clip of Billy Graham preaching from this actual text, unashamedly. The Apostle Paul said in all of his preaching, in all of his proclaiming of the gospel, there is an offense to the cross. Paul said, I can preach anything else, and there's no offense. But when you preach the cross, there is an offense. And this expression, the offense of the cross, sounds strange to our modern ears. Because you see, we have a beautiful cross on our churches. We have crosses in the lapels of our coats. We have crosses around our necks. We have crosses embossed on our Bibles. We never think of it as a scandal and as an offense. And yet the Bible says it's a stumbling block. 
It's an offense. It's a scandal among men. It's a base and despised thing. It is an old rugged cross. It was a place to execute criminals. It was a place where the vilest died. And when I see Christ hanging on the cross, I say with Isaiah, there is no beauty that I should desire him. Paul says that in his day there was an offense, and I found in my own ministry that I can preach anything else, and it's called popular. It pleases the ear. But when I come to the heart of Christianity, when I come to the cross and the blood and the resurrection, that is the stumbling block. That's the thing people do not want to hear. That's the thing that is foolish. That's the thing that is an offense. And yet it's that very thing that is the heart of the gospel. And without the cross, there is no salvation. There is no forgiveness. God said, I'll meet the human race only one place. That is the cross. And if you haven't been to the cross, there is no salvation and there is no forgiveness. I respect him so much. I don't know if you know this, but he was consistently mocked and ridiculed. People just said, your message is so simple. It's offensive. Stop talking about the cross. Talk about something else. And Billy Graham was unashamed. Second don't Paul gives us in this passage is don't feel you have to hype up the gospel to share it. I didn't know how else to write this one. But don't feel you have to hype up the gospel to share it. This is a temptation we all have today, right? I can't share my faith because I'm not an expert in apologetics. I'm not an expert on the Bible, and I'm certainly not a great speaker. But that's not how God works. He almost never looks for great speakers. Billy Graham might be an exception here. But for the most part, he chooses ordinary, weak people, and here's what he does. It's upside down, I know, but he puts us in the path of those who haven't yet heard the message, and he gives us opportunities to share it. Paul came to Corinth in fear and trembling. As I said to you, he wasn't known to be a great public speaker, and yet God used his sharing powerfully. People came to faith in Jesus, not because of some big show he put on, because the Spirit of God was at work. And it's the same way it still works today. Can I admit something to you I'm ashamed of? This week was one of the worst weeks for me preparing this message. And the reason was the very same thing I'm telling you right now. How can I spice this up a little bit? How can I make this better? How can I make it more appealing? And I'm sitting in this room on Wednesday at noon and a hammer hits me in the head. It's called the conviction of the Holy Spirit saying to me, you're doing the same thing you're about to tell people not to do. Speak the message of the cross. That's it. You're not the person who's going to change somebody's heart. I am the only one who can do that. Part of the foolishness of Christianity is that God uses people like me and people like you to introduce people to him. I will never get over that. So will you speak it plainly when you are given the opportunity? Will you not let your fear and your weakness get in the way of letting God speak his message of salvation through you? You see, that's when God works best. So as we close, here's the thought I'd like us to consider that kind of ties both of those ideas together. Here's the question. Will we boast in the foolishness of the cross still today? 
no matter what it might cost us, will we boast in the foolishness of the cross still today? Will we be the unashamed? Let's pray. Oh Lord, forgive us for wanting a theology of glory. Forgive me. When you have made it abundantly clear that our path is the same path as your path. And yet that path is where the power is. It's an upside down power, but it's power nonetheless. That path is where salvation is. And many of us in this room have experienced it. So God, help us to have the courage as we walk into this world that considers this message foolish to be unashamed, to take those opportunities that you give us to share what you have done in our lives. Help us to do that humbly. Help us to do that with grace. And Lord, I'd be remiss this morning to not end with an opportunity for someone in this room who does not yet know you to come to know you. And so as I pray this prayer, and that's you, that you have heard today, your eyes are open to the message of the cross, that Jesus died for you, and he wants a relationship with you. I invite you to pray these words with me. Dear God, I know I'm a sinner and I ask for your forgiveness. I believe Jesus Christ is your son. I believe that he died for my sin and was raised to life. I want to trust him as my savior and follow him as Lord from this day forward. Guide my life and help me to do your will. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information or to stay connected to Cherry Hills Church, please visit our website at cherryhillsfamily.org or follow us on Facebook.